Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Welcome to episode 99, nearly 100 down. Wow. That is a serious achievement. Well, it will be if we make it to 100. But nonetheless, yeah, 99 is a lot. So yeah, I guess we'll just keep playing on, shall we? I think that's all we can really do. We are approaching the holiday period. It's slightly unclear at this stage what we're going to be doing next week on the show. We might have a break. We might do a Christmas special or there might be the 100th episode. I think it's unlikely that the 100th episode will be next week though. It's Boxing Day, the 26th, next Tuesday. I think the most likely thing, which has to be decided imminently, of course, but hasn't been decided yet, the most likely thing is that there will be a non-typical episode of the pod next week and then we will continue with episode 100 on what will be the 2nd of January, 2024. Wow, 2024. That seems like a futuristic date. And technically it is, but yeah, not as much as it seems. Anyway, this week on the show, we have two guests, one of whom is a repeat guest, and he's come back specifically to talk about one thing in particular. That is Ben Morris, previously of episode 63 on the show. He is from Kudos Distribution and is just a general all-round music guy. We're talking to him about Salt and specifically the big Salt show that happened in London last week that everyone in the UK industry is talking about. Probably quite a bit outside the UK too, but it is very much a UK music industry thing, the Salt Project. So a bit of an explainer on that. And then we get deep in the weeds on exactly what happened at that show last week. It sounded pretty amazing. And I wanted to get on someone who was there to talk about it. 
basically. So that's what we're doing first. And then after that, a much longer chat with James Jackson, aka Jacko of Listen Up, talking radio plugging. Radio plugging is not something we've covered too deeply on the show before. So we wanted to do this for a while. And Jacko is just the number one man to do that with. So yeah, that's the guts of this show. But before that, let's welcome Ben Morris. Ben Morris, how are you doing, sir? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, very well. Very well. So yeah, just wanted to yeah chat about this Salt show. But actually, I wanted to chat about Salt generally as well, because it's come to my, come to my attention, having tried to talk to a lot of people about this, is that it's seemingly every single person in London loves Salt and knows about Salt, but outside London, quite a lot of people just don't know <laughs> anything about it. So tell me about the whole thing, or tell the audience about the whole thing generally. Okay, well, they got brought to my attention during lockdown, really. A good friend of mine, Al, who has very sort of similar taste in music to me, recommended it. And it, it, it was one of those things where you kind of see it everywhere and you're like, what is this? Maybe I should check it out. And I checked out the album Untitled Rise, and it just knocked me sideways. The production on it, it kind of harked back to... Charles Stepney, Motown, but it also sounded very now as well. And I think, you know, the sort of oldest trick in the book, the the burial trick, no one knew who they were. So I think, you know, a lot of people were at home, they had a lot of disposable income, and it happened at the right time. I mean, I think there's some other political aspects of it too, that they came out with this music in the aftermath of the George Floyd with this very strong message as well. And I think it definitely resonated with a lot of people as well. So, you know, as you do, you kind of do some digging to find out who it is. And there's their singer, Cleo Soul, as well, who, you know, you can tell that's her voice singing on a lot of the tracks. Little Sims as well, who everyone knows. But everyone was trying to suss out who Inflo was, the seeming mastermind behind it all. And he's done production for Adele, a lot of Little Sims' stuff, a lot of Cleo Soul stuff. He was discovered by the guy from the Kooks, I realised. Yeah. <laughs> today, which is amazing. You know what? I, I went down the Kooks rabbit hole this afternoon. I didn't realise how big the Kooks are. They're still pretty big. Like, compared to those other sort of 2000s bands with the the in the title, like they're fucking, they're pretty popular. I couldn't believe it. But anyway, yeah, he, he produced their um 2014 album wow okay yeah it's on the list to check out but it's pretty yeah it's pretty good actually it's pretty it's definitely listenable i listened to the tracks he did with adele as well and um yeah the production on them is just insane so you know he's clearly clearly a very talented individual and i think what one thing i can't suss out is that i think since 2019 i think the first salt record came out Yep. Since then, they've dropped 11 albums, five of which on one day. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, so I'm just, I, I kind of wonder if all this is like a life's work, which they're releasing as and when, or whether they've just got this insane work rate. I can't suss it out. And part of me doesn't want to suss it out either. You know, you just kind of enjoy it when it happens. But yeah, big fan of their music. Their music is even the... the the two, one's called Air and one's called Air, but spelt with two I's. So it's a sequel. And, you know, they're sort of classical 
pieces and even they're really good as well but li- listening to those and then listening to some of the other inflow productions i'm kind of getting the vibe that these were all done in one session and some of it was used on productions for other people and some of it was for these albums like he kind of must have made the most of this studio time and having these resources to hand and made it all in one go then chopped it up later on i think yeah i mean i was doing a little bit of digging too today i was trying to figure out whether there's a label you know a big label behind this or whether there's some kind of you know unseen hand even more unseen than uh can be sort of yeah found out about but apparently there isn't apparently he he funds it all himself and presumably yes like you say like when he's able to go into big studios to do something like an adele project he presumably you know uses that time to kind of mm. do some other stuff. Well. I mean, that's a complete guess, but I'm, and that's what I would do. Do you know what I mean? If I was doing something like that. That's my read of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be using these resources. Maybe on someone else's coin, fair play, if so. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, you know, taking an extra couple of hours at the end of the day if it's available. Then why the fuck absolutely. not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So they did this gig, this show. Mm. Lo- was, it, was it last week? It was. It was last Thursday. Yeah. So tell us about the show because the show really got people talking. It did. And in lots of different ways. <laughs> in lots of different ways. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think they announced it two days before they put the tickets on sale. And then the tickets went on sale on Monday for the show that was on Thursday. It was a hundred pounds. You know, there's no getting around the fact that that is a lot of money, you know, in this economic climate it's a lot of it's a big ask of people i have to say though because that definitely was the pushback from lots and lots of people online and yes it is but you know compared to other tickets it's not ridiculous like when you compare it to i don't know any any big gig in london certainly anything of any scale like if you go to it's not no if you go to the o2 to see someone or even if you go to wembley stadium i mean you're going to be paying I mean, the most expensive tickets are vastly higher than that. But was was it just a straight one hundred? Was there no? It was ninety nine pounds. There was no booking fee or anything on top of that. And no, no, like different levels to it. There's no VIP no. option or whatever. Yeah, okay. That was it. So um, I could only get one ticket, much to um, my wife's dismay because she's a big fan as well. So I was like, okay, I'm fl- guess I'm flying solo then. I think what they created was. It wasn't your traditional show. It was, you know, and I'm sure everyone's seen the Instagram posts from everybody like uh, Giles Peterson and Benji B and people like that have done these gushing Instagram posts. It was more of a interactive experience than it was a show. You walked in, uh, sort of anyone who hasn't seen the videos, you walked through a performance arts piece to get to the venue. Yep. So there was actors, there was an, uh, a garden laid out. How much this must have cost? Right. Must have been five times what they made off ticket sales, basically. It was insane. Um, and then you walk in the venue and there you could sort of, what they'd done, what I thought was really good, I was talking to one of the girls behind the bar because there was no alcohol either. Right. They weren't serving alcohol. It was an 18 plus event, but they weren't serving alcohol. That must have been something to do with the venue and licensing and stuff, right? Could be. Yeah. Maybe. You know, I mean, yeah, it could be. I don't know. I don't know whether it was an artistic sort of decision or whether it was, you know, Thursday night at the venue. Right. Don't know. I guess we'll never know. 
Uh, but I was chatting to one of the girls behind the bar and she said, oh, normally this place, it's a shell. You know, it's an old Ikea, but they sold 3,000 tickets where it normally holds, I think it's twelve to 15,000. Right. Yeah. It's a massive venue. And the installations that they had there, it must have run into millions. Right. You know, what they did. So uh, my only sort of thinking of it can be, are they taking this show elsewhere as well? Now they've got these sets built and are they going to take it to other venues? But with something like this, it's got to be that size of venue that can accommodate it as well. Cause it's a big production. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So could you just describe in a little bit more detail what it was like in there? So there was obviously a lot of music, but was it was, I mean, did you, did everyone sit down at some point and watch the same thing or there was how much of moving around was there? And all that stuff. No, I, th- I think a lot of it was they undersold on the tickets. So people had space to walk around and see the various parts of it. Cause on the left hand side, there was a pit for a full orchestra. So you could walk around there and you could see there was a 50, 60 piece orchestra in one side and kind of in the middle of it was almost like a cat, like you'd get at a runway show. There was a, a catwalk with a stage at the end, which was in the center of the crowd. On the right-hand side was a stand, and there was a 75-person choir. Wow. And big video screen behind the stage. In the middle of the crowd was almost like an octagon with a garden round it, which which was glass, and you could see there was instruments in there. There was a drum kit and a keyboard and stuff in there. And at one point during the night, you could see people being led through the crowd wearing balaclavas and sunglasses who went into this octagon. Then the glass kind of steamed up, so you couldn't see it was in the middle of that Okay. as well, (laughs) which had seating all round it as well. So you could sit round this octagon and look inside that. You, 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 You didn't know where to look half the time. Do you know what I mean? You were like, was there and was there one kind of central performance going on, or was it multiple things happening at once? So there was like three. There was three distinct parts to it. There was the beginning with the choir and the orchestra, which was material from the two sort of orchestral albums that they've done. Mm. Then there was the acts of faith bit, which was, from what I understand, it was a new album which you're only going to hear once, they're not going to release it, and that's it. If you weren't at the gig, you're, and aside from clips on social media, you're never going to hear it again. Right. I mean, I'm getting I'm getting full-on KLF vibes from this whole thing, to be honest. Yeah, 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 yeah. And apparently I heard someone told me that Giles Peterson messaged the label and said, hey, one of these tracks that you played, can I get it for my radio? I want to play it on the radio show. And they were like, no, you don't understand that's it. That's the only time that's getting played. It's done. Wow. <laughs> and then after that, it was, so they brought out all the guests, you know, there was Little Sims, Michael Kiwanuka, Chronics as well, all wearing disguises, but you could very sort of clearly tell it was them. Right. And I'm sure I saw Inflow playing the drums on one song as well. Like, uh, I've, you know, there's like two pictures of him online. One's like a close up of his face and the other's him on a drum kit. And someone pointed out to me, it's like, oh, that's inflow. And I think he was playing the drums on one song. And, and then after that, it was like a conventional performance, but there was dancers, there was 
multiple piece drum ensembles like a batacuda brazilian drum ensemble playing as well they had dancers with boxes because salt everyone thought salt was a ba- the band's name but it turns out it's an acronym yeah um so these dancers came out with these boxes with letters on and they did a performance and it spelled out what the acronym meant which is start a universal love trend and everyone kind of lost their mind when they showed that at the end <laughs> and then the last sort of out it was a probably a two and a half hour three hour show and then the last hour was kind of like the power hour with all the hits which no one thought they were going to play but they powered through all the well-known tunes finished wildfires which is like their most sort of stream tune on spotify and then that was it it was done right (laughs) everyone sort of left Like at the end, was there a big kind of traditional concert ending? Everyone takes a bow kind of thing and waves to the crowd. No, no, no. That was it. It was done. Because a lot of the time, Cleo Soul would come out and sing on the stage in the middle of the crowd, but she was wearing a balaclava and sunglasses for one of them. And another time she was like, uh, the only way I can describe it is like Lady Jessica from June, where she had a chain mail over her face and stuff. Yeah, it was it was pretty wild. It was definitely the wildest sort of show I've ever seen. And the amount of planning and logistics that must have gone into it, it can't be a one off. There's got to be other shows in other countries. Was there filming going on, obviously? Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was, there was professional. It was being professionally filmed. Right. Okay. Yeah, there was. I'm sending you some pictures after we're done. There was booms over the crowd with cameras and stuff as well my closest comparison would be like the opening ceremony for an olympic event that sort (laughs) of level of things but with way better music i think giles peterson summed it up best where he said kind of look this wasn't a money-making exercise it was about the myth yeah do you know what i mean it's like people are still talking about it now clearly if that's what they were going for objective achieved you know because people are going to be talking about this for years totally so yeah who was there what was the crowd like it was it was a very diverse crowd okay so it didn't feel too industry not really no i think everyone's everyone was kind of too busy picking their jaws up the off the floor to feel you know elitist or anything like that everyone was kind of sort of sharing this mad experience together and sort of looking at each other going what the fuck is going on you know wow yeah very refreshing you know and i think hopefully that will set a new standard you know for for kind of people to up their game a bit as well yeah i mean (laughs) well yeah i I hear you but it doesn't usually work like that does it because i mean these kinds of these kinds of things these kind of real conceptual meticulously executed like statements artistic statements i suppose they're just really hard to do i suppose aren't they really that's the bottom line and they're not just hard they require a, a level of strategic thinking which is just very unusual yeah you know and i'm like klf is the only one i can really think of that is really in the same kind of ballpark if you're talking about kind of the uk quote-unquote underground music yeah no definitely definitely that's a, it's a really good comparison actually to kind of not so much hoodwink people, but sort of lull people into thinking, have I just paid £100 to watch, you know, a four-piece band on a stage? 
keep their mouth shut about it and then go, here you are, once you walk in the venue. Right. You know, knowing that all this is going to be shared on social media and things like that as well. It's, it's very, very clever. Yeah, fascinating, man. It'll be interesting, very, very interesting to see, like you say, what happens next, whether it's a, um, you can imagine it being a kind of Netflix thing that pops up, you know, something like that. Yeah, I don't know, because that kind of goes against their sort of whole anonymity. It's all about the music rather than us sort of thing. But let's see, it was, it was definitely being filmed. Yes. Well, it sounds like you enjoyed it, man. So, <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, my wife is sick to death of me, like showing her videos and stuff. <laughs> so are my friends. They're all sick to death of it as well. So. Fair fucks. Well, yeah, man. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Nice one, mate. Okay. Yeah. Salt, as in S-A-U-L-T. Lots of links in the show notes to the relevant stuff. I'm not sure if I was being completely unfair when I said that it's a massively London-centric thing. I suspect that it probably is. I don't know. It's definitely a UK thing, and it feels like a London thing. But I'm really interested by the question of how wide they even want to take that project and how wide it wants to go. I mean, the music is really, really great. But it's, you know, conceptual in nature and very mysterious and very not hard sell. And it almost feels a bit 20th century like that in its approach to publicity anyway it's just not really how things are done these days which makes it even cooler i have to say that's not a ding on it at all it's um absolutely up my street in that respect so yeah fascinating and yeah check out the music if you haven't done so already and there's just tons of videos and stuff online from the show it really does sound like it was awesome and kind of gutted that i wasn't able to get there myself oh well moving on we haven't done an industry insider type episode for a good while now and we haven't really discussed radio on the show too much before either so this week's guest is an absolutely perfect person to remedy both those two things it's james jackson aka jacko from listen up which is one of the foremost promotions companies in the uk they do club radio and press but i think they're most well known for radio and the name of the agency suggests that they originally started off as a purely radio plugging outfit and they've gradually expanded but yeah jacko joined near the start and is now managing director of press club and radio so he's one of the main men at that company and as such is very well placed to discuss all the episodes around it so yeah despite the fact that they do press and club we are definitely focusing on radio in the conversation this week we get pretty deep in the weeds on how radio works, particularly in the UK. We don't talk too much about other territories in this episode. It's very UK focused. But I mean, even if you're not in the UK, you will find it interesting too, because the UK radio sector is arguably the world's leader. And many of the major radio stations, particularly the BBC ones, are available overseas too, and are widely listened to overseas. So it's really fascinating digging into that stuff, how exactly it works. The playlist structure on radio, as opposed to streaming playlists, like when we're talking about playlists on this episode, we're talking about the playlisting that determines what gets played on the sort of big daytime shows on the, the big radio stations. Obviously, after a certain time at night, it goes specialist and the playlists aren't directly relevant. But as we hear, what goes into the playlist is influenced by what happens on those shows too so it's, it's just a very interesting area we also talk about other things which influence the radio ecosystem like streaming 
like TikTok, like socials in general, the way in which different size artists view radio. Jacko does Doja Cat in the UK, so we get an insight into working with a really, really huge act. And just, um, yeah, he knows his stuff, obviously, and is a great person to talk to about this. So yeah, it was great to have him on. I guess we'll jump into it, shall we? I haven't done my usual plug for the Patreon and subscriptions and all that stuff yet. So just if you're interested in supporting the show directly, then just check the links in the show notes. I won't go on about it too much here. But patreon.com slash scubaofficial and scubaofficial.io slash support is where you can do it. But without further delay, here is James Jackson, a.k.a. Jacko. Jacko from Listen Up. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good, mate. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yes. Yes, I am good. So, yeah, we were just talking off mic about what I might be asking about. And obviously we're talking about radio because you are. Well, in fact, let's let's just kick off by you introducing yourself a little bit. So why don't you tell the audience who you are? Uh, I'm Jacko. Everyone calls me Jacko anyway. Um, I run a radio plugging PR company, I suppose. I don't really get involved in the press side of the business. Myself and Luke Neville run a radio plugging company, I suppose. It's pretty niche. But I try and explain this to people. Essentially, it's PR for radio, I suppose. We get hired to buy record labels, managers, artists to get their records played on radio. And that's not like we are like geniuses. I always say it's PR, not ER, but um, it's more like the relationships that we have and what we, you know, where we've come from, I suppose. We're a trusted source of of, um, new music. So, yeah, Listen Up is primarily radio. Is that correct? It's only started off as radio, didn't it? It, it, yeah, it started off as national radio. I, I was at Defected Records for about eight years, finished there as a uh, promotions manager. And I, a friend of mine was Luke Neville, who was, you know, he's an old school guy, he's been around, he was a at Manifesto, whatever. He set up a, a radio plug-in company, which was just daytime national radio. And essentially at that time, there was a lot of labels, a lot of artists starting to do their own labels um, in the more sort of, I suppose... The one of a better word, EDM lane, Mm. obviously everyone had labels and always has had labels, but I think in that lane, there was a lot more, there was a lot more money to spend on promotion and marketing and social media because they were all doing these main stage gigs and what have you. And essentially he, we, I was working a lot of those labels via defected label services sort of by default, but that was kind of coming to an end. And he approached me about, you know, well, actually I approached him about um, potentially going and working with him and doing more of a specialist focus because specialist radio became really important for setting up sort of potential crossover records, I suppose. Ah, right, okay. And at that point, there was no, there was only one other company really doing it, uh, Your Army, who, who were great at it. But Luke didn't. He just did daytime radio. So he was doing, you know, I, I hired him to do uh, Dennis Ferrer, Hey Hey, and Ten Snake Cobra Cat while I was at Defected. So that sort of relationship just formed there. Okay, yeah. So just to clarify the thing about specialist radio, because that's something which I guess is not necessarily obvious. So so for, for a company like yours, using specialist radio as a kind of conveyor belt or as a kind of incubator, actually, yeah. to generate those kind of bigger hits, that's the point of, of a company like yours focusing on specialist radio to the extent that you do. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, there's, there's two different lanes. I think... That it has it's sort of morphed into that now. Before 
everyone want you know everyone wants the profile. It's like where everyone wanted wanted like press and press coverage and online press coverage. It's, it was a similar sort of thing. Like artists, producers, essentially in a specialist lane in whatever lane that is, mm. you know, appreciate the value of airplay at radio. You know, and I think you know they, there's money to made, be made in PPL or whatever. Um, but there's also you know the profile it gives you the nod of Pete Tong or back then Annie Mac or you know it was always. It, it, it was more of a profile thing. It was also not a respect. And you know, a lot of people looked at it then and they still look at it now. Um, and I think it's just overall exposure in a sort of more mainstream space. But we use, you know, specialist records are, you know, there are records that could get 60, 70 plays at somewhere like Radio 1 that don't go on to be massive hits. I think more recently, Radio 1 have probably been more receptive to those bigger specialist records having a bit of limelight on daytime radio. But largely, if it's a dance record, it's got to start somewhere, and that's normally in a specialist show, um, whether that's Danny Howard or whether that is Sarah Story or I suppose even Jack Saunders and Clara. Mm. It just depends what uh, what lane it is, really, and, and what the strategy is, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you use the um, the exposure word, especially in comparison to to press, because, I mean, I think that maybe the key difference between radio and press is that you know press i think is a kind of status thing for a lot of people and i think it's it's actually a good way of looking at press certainly from a label's perspective a great press campaign it's not tangible at all in the wider campaign of a record but with radio yeah i mean radio really can go somewhere like it's obviously everyone likes likes being played on radio one everyone likes you know hearing Pete Tong read out their name, yeah. But actually, it's it's potentially more than that too. So that's, I guess that's the difference, right? Yeah, and look, it's about growing a project, um, you know, growing a release and, and developing it into a to a broader market. I think you know, back in the day, like you know, you promote pre promoted records, like you, the record was released almost at the end of the campaign because you promoted it so hard to get into a point where it was, it was able to then. When you released it, everyone just went and bought it because the only place you could hear it was radio at that point or if you had a vinyl promo. Whereas now, you have to build campaigns while it's releasing. So everything has to sort of grow alongside it, I suppose. Right. Um, you know, streaming has become, a, you know, we can talk about streaming, but I think um, streaming has become something that I talk about daily. Um, that's, and we only sort of really sort of work in a small area of the streaming, I suppose labels really sort of have to fight to build records alongside the radio because the radio is purely about passion. Sure. Um, from that presenter, I suppose, you know, like, like playlists on streaming. Does that make any sense? Does that come across in the right way? I'm trying to explain it. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. Right. Yeah, totally. So, so what's the biggest record on the radio in the UK right now? Dance record. No, what's the biggest record? Just generally. We were Mariah Carey at this time of year, to be fair. Um, oh, that, that was my next question. I was going to ask about Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like 30, I think it was a quote the other day. It was like 32 Christmas songs out of the top 40. Right. It's already there. So okay. 32 records in the top 40 are Christmas songs. Actually, we've got one of the eight that, that isn't, but that's a very commercial sort of kind of pop dance vibe. Okay. Um, is, is that the biggest dance record? Uh, yeah, it probably was until last week, I think. I think it probably is the dance, biggest dance record. It was, a, it was a record by like a kid just out of uni, a guy called Casso, really nice guy. 
he did a bootleg while he was in uni. By the time he'd finished uni six weeks later, he'd got signed by Ministry and had Ray, who we also do as a, as a solo artist, and D-Block Europe featuring on his record, which went top 30 in its first week. Wow. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And I think like that, again, that shows like sort of the impact of like SoundCloud and radio, really, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Well, this, this brings, that's yeah. Sat number two. That's at number two for like six weeks. I think it was only the Beatles that kept him off number one. You know, that brand new act. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well this, yeah, this, this brings us neatly onto my next line of inquiry, which was like, what constitutes a, a hit record today? Has it changed? And how do you get there? So that's three, obviously three questions, but like, yeah. What is a hit record? What's your definition of a hit record today in 2023? Uh, I don't know. I, a hit record, you can still have gold, silver, platinum records that, that never really see radio. Not ones that I've worked, obviously, but um, <laughs> a hit record. I suppose there's a difference between uh, a hit and a crossover record. A crossover hit right. is probably the best way to, to do that. And look, that's not solely what, we, what, what I do or what we do as a team. It's a hit is, you know, a hit is really is a number one record. Mm. Um, that's, that's, that's the ultimate goal with any sort of commercial record, but like I've had, you know, we had number six record with MK this year, like, and Sonny Federa, which was, you know, that was a, a very specialist record that didn't cross over because it never got added to Capital FM. So it never really crossed into the ultimate commercial space, I suppose. I mean, the charts are compiled differently to how they used to be, aren't they? I'm not completely sure how it works now, but there's a quite a few different things that go into it now, which, I mean, it was it was used to be a fairly simple metric and it, it's a little yeah, bit... Yeah, sell CDs, sell vinyl, get a chart. Yeah. Uh, I think now, there's obviously, I think it's, uh, oh, I'm going to get shot for not knowing this, but it's probably, I think it's about a thousand streams or it's either a thousand streams or I think it's a thousand streams that are calculated as one sale. So if you bought a CD or a download, I think it's a thousand streams. So streams obviously are very important. And I think that's, you know, it's obviously controlled by sort of probably three or maybe four main platforms, as as you know. Hmm. But I think it is, a, yeah, chart-wise, it's, um, it's very different. But that's, again, the, the reason, like, you know, we have to build campaigns. You know, we have to really get records to a place that are, sort of at 60, 70 plays before you're really even hitting that sort of playlist sort of situation mm. or even conversation, really. But there's very sort of, you know, there's a very sort of, there's very specific strategies that we will do for depending on what records we do. So we will do um, Ray, for example, who left her deal with Polydor and became a solo artist and did a, did a deal with Orchard. Um, you know, we've we've worked her since that point and the strategy there was really to build her profile at radio one sorry to just if i can just jump in there just to clarify um and particularly for people from outside the uk radio one like explicitly radio one that being the most very much the most important thing right not at all actually okay it's important obviously massively to every campaign because it's national radio and it's actually you know it's broadcast internationally you can live in a more specialist world in radio because in Radio One because Radio One isn't commercial radio. They don't sell adverts to mm. to make money because they it's license payers. Yeah. So they can be diverse in terms of what they can be much more diverse in terms of what they broadcast. But commercial radio is is, is as important. 
with a pop song or a, or a commercial song. I think, you know, Kiss, and, and on a specialist level, Kiss definitely sort of worked very hard at that. I think even Capital Dance now is like a more, you know, it's obviously a slightly more commercial than, than Radio 1 in certain spaces, but Radio 1's, it's always been like the sort of the target because it was national radio. I think now everyone wants everything, if I'm honest. So sorry, I, I interrupted you because I think the um, I think the question about how you how you go about building a campaign is a really interesting one. And yeah, you were just in the middle of uh, that example. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, with Ray, it was very different. Like we'd learned, we'd done a lot of sort of acts in the sort of R and B, hip hop, sort of rap space. We worked Doja Cat's last two, three albums, um, and, and multiple other artists. Uh, and Ray was sort of kind of one we, we we wanted to sort of build as a you know a proper proper hit artist proposition, and that comes from you know really working with Radio 1 to try and sort of engineer the fact that she is that and talking to music team and, and, and producers and presenters and starting with, you know, finding her home. I like, you know, she had a story to tell. We set up the first record of this new project. We set up a, a hottest record with Clara Ampho to, to, for her to be able to go into Radio 1 and tell the story about what was behind her reason for leaving her, her label. Um, and that, created exposure heat which everybody wanted to buy into and everyone uh, thought was a, a you know a very cool thing for her to have done and i think from there that was a catalyst to sort of heat on specific singles to where she is now uh, which is next level mm. all in probably like the last i don't know 18 months two years tops sure that's that's one space, and then you obviously have the more specialist space where you'll build a dance record yeah uh, which you know comes from a hottest record with Danny, I suppose, or a track ID with Sarah, or a Century Tune still has its, you know, has its place. Um, probably a bit more underground these days, mm. and building out long-term campaigns from that, building up record uh, radio plays, and getting other shows to play it from the back of the heat of, you know, a hottest record. Okay, so let me ask you, just going back to, to Ray for a second. Yeah. There was obviously a wider strategy. Radio was obviously part of a, a wider strategy for, for building her up as an artist. Yeah. So what were the, for, for you, going into Radio 1 and, and talking to the relevant people and your, I, I guess, pitching work, like what are the most significant things that support a pitch of that sort or support a kind of like a wider story that you can then sell? Like what are the most important things that an artist does to generate that kind of interest at radio? Um... I suppose a story, a story, you know, a reason for someone, for, for presenters and producers to buy in to the artist. Obviously, the music has to be shit hot mm. as well. But I think having a story there in the, uh, in the beginning is, is quite important or, or at least, um, you know, there's activity outside of just the music. I think, um, you know, Ray had a story. Her story was that, you know, she'd been at a major label for a long time. They, she wanted to put an album out. They didn't want her to, you know, they, they stifled that for whatever reason. Um, and she wanted out. So she, you know, she went about trying to get, it, get out of it, get out of that deal so that she could go and express herself and be more of a daytime, do her album, essentially, I suppose. Mm. And she's an incredible talent. But the story, you know, that, that, was, the sto that was the initial story and that was for us to be able to go and set up, you know, a Clara Ampho Heights record, her go in and, um, and do her interview and tell her story. And I think it was a story that um, a lot of people sort of 
wanted to relate to yeah. because she was going against the major label system, I suppose. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I think like I think maybe in days gone by, the well, I suppose you could look at it a number of ways, but a lot of people would see it as being, you know, being rejected by the major label ecosystem. And that is not necessarily a good thing, you know, PR wise. And that definitely, you know, has not always historically been a kind of selling point for an act. So it's quite interesting to me that that was a key um, plus point in terms of selling and telling a story. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, but with every record, I think, you know, even if you break it down to the basics, you know, Sarah, when Sarah's story came onto Radio One, like her first feature that she started was Track ID. And the whole point of the Track ID was that it was a record that had heat in clubs, that there was content for them to share about. And there was more of a story to record some, you know, whoever, you know, a big DJ was playing their record or hammering their record. And there was content to back that up. And I think, you know, in, in every sort of walk of music now, like, content's king right and having content to talk about or having something specific to talk about and i think that is the start point of every record now sure but i think there's you know but still it's not it's not compulsory you know what i mean it's like if a record's strong enough people want to play it i think that's that's kind of the rule of thumb if it's a good enough record people will play it yeah Absolutely. So, okay. I had a question actually about club DJs breaking records, but just before we get to that, when you say content around it, do you literally mean there's stuff for the BBC to put on their socials to support the play of a, of a record? Is that what you mean by that? No, I think there's just like, again, it's just really a, a, an angle or a story. You know, there's right. there's so many records out there like, and, and it does, it comes from the class, particularly on, in like electronic music, which is largely the vast um, uh, the, vastly the most records we work are in electronic music and whether that's sort of a slightly more uh, commercial MK record or whether that's a, you know, your, a scuba project, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Having a, a, a story or a piece of content, even if it is just someone playing their record, I mean, like everyone loses their head because Peggy Goo played a record, but they, you know, I get labels saying to me that, you know, Danny Howard liked to post, you know, and that's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, that's the levels that we're talking. It's, it's it's kind of like, I think everyone's on the hustle, you know? So I think you just got to find your way like with it. I, I mean, there's, I, I, social media for me is, is something that I've never really been massive into. I don't really post a lot about my, my own life. I don't really, I don't really sort of have a need to, to put it out there really, I suppose, but I come from an older sort of space. Mm being 45 I suppose like I, I, it's not hard. I didn't grow up with it do you know what I mean I didn't have a phone till I was bloody 18 do you know what I mean so I think for me it's a little bit different but you know it has its place in you know in the modern music industry for sure and everyone's looking for an angle I suppose yeah, absolutely. Which segues nicely into your club promotion or club promo question or your club DJ question. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes. Okay, so club DJs breaking track. I, I talked to, well, we had A-Track on the show last week and we we talked about this issue and how it had changed, like the the role of the club DJ in, in breaking a record. So, in, you know, in the context of what you've been talking about, kind of coming out of clubs and into radio, like what is the role of the club DJ in, in this particular instance and how has it changed over time? Uh, I think uh, club promotion was always about a buzz of a record. You know, like, it, you know, in, in my defense days, you'd go to Miami with a fucking trunk full of records and you wanted everyone playing your vinyl because that, that was kind of like having the hottest Miami records was, you know, every label's sort of target, I suppose. 
you know, that's that's evolved, obviously, and I think now club promotion still has its place. I think the problem with that is that, one, I find like a lot of DJs now play their, either their own records solely or their own edits or, you know, they... they um, they dig a bit deeper or they, they, you know, there's, you know, they, they don't sort of, club promotion is important because you're, you're getting DJs, records into DJs hands, mm. but there's a lot of DJs out there that won't just go and they won't just listen to promos and play promos. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How many promos do you play? Just out of curiosity. I mean, I, I listen to them just to try to, you know, keep track of what's happening. Exactly. But in terms of what I actually play in my set, yeah, it's not super significant, I don't think. Certainly, I, th- I think it's got less significant in the last few years. Yeah, and I think, like, look, you look out for the names that you know and you look out for the names, but, like, you know, largely you probably make the vast majority of the records you play out, maybe, or, or there's, you know, your you know, mates with an artist that, you know, are, are groups of artists that just send you bangers for because they want you to play in the club. And I think, <laughs> obviously not when you're playing Berghain or whatever, but I think, you know... You, the dream for them would be still to, I still think now is like have content of a video of you playing their record early before, before they've even signed it to anyone. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because that's the kind of desire now. It's just like, Oh, social media. So you, you need content for that. Yeah. And as an artist, it's, it's, it's it must be draining because there's two sides to it is, you know, one is that you don't want to sort of, you need to promote your records but also it's like how you do that in a credible way, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's a real minefield, I think, particularly what well, has become worse like that. And it is very difficult now because, yeah, I, I think promos are like DJ promo, I think it's got a bit of a bad reputation. Like, I think just the volume of it. Yeah. You know, it's it's the classic DJ moan on social media. It's like, oh God, I've got to go through my promos and they're all shit. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, but no, it absolutely. is true, unfortunately. But we, all had, we all had PO boxes back in the day that were just stacked full of vinyl that you had to go through because you didn't want to miss out on a, like a vinyl that was like, you know, a potential banger that nobody else had, you know? And I think, you know, my days at Defective was packing, my first job was sitting in Sandy Rivera's studio packing vinyl for, for promos and did that for a long time. But maybe it, music is that much more disposable now. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the point I was going to make was that, you know, back in the, the vinyl promo days is that, you know, there's just that much higher barrier to entry there, right? So like you said, I mean, disposable is the word. I mean, but it's, it's just a, it's a natural consequence of, anyone being able to do something at basically no financial outlay or minimal financial outlay. I mean, just by definition, the supply is going to increase exponentially in that kind of environment. Yeah. Right? And that just means the quality is going to go down. It has to, right? And I think it's probably fair to say that it has on average. Yeah, because it's, it's I mean, I think, you know, everyone's got contactable on an email. Like, you know, you don't have everyone's home address so you can send them vinyl. Do you know what I mean? It's... um and I think that's it went from vinyl to CD to digital. And for years, I just sent links to DJs via email because it was the easiest way. I think even still now, we try and do that um, as much as possible with DJs that that, that, that aren't going to listen to, uh, you know, go through their emails or go and listen to in-flight. But, you know, Fat Drop, when you got a first time you used to get a Fat Drop promo, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's a banger. But it was Fat Drop. It wasn't really mm. the promo, I suppose. Yeah, you can't. It, I don't know. It was weird because we we went through you know 
fat drop and now we use in-flight for sending promos to DJs that use in-flight. Mm. But you're right, it's it's totally disposable. Um, I mean, I stopped listening to promos years ago. I have to listen to a lot of records, but I stopped listening to promos years ago But because it was just ridiculous. It was out of control. Yeah, there's only so much bandwidth. Yeah, and I suppose, like, I, I, look, for me still, like, physical product still has its place. And I think... In a very different way, though, right? In a very different way, yeah. I think it's it's definitely in a better space. But again, I, I don't want to go off on tangent, but, like, the whole, you know... Yes, music is disposable. Club promotion definitely has its place. I think it has its place more now in probably a more commercial space right. because every DJ has his own, you know, mates list of DJs that he wants to have the record. Apart from that, I suppose that it's, there's not really a desire to get it any further, particularly if you're running your own label. You just like, you want to make sure that the people you want to get, get it. Mm. Uh, I think probably on a more commercial not commercial, commercial, but like a more of an, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Yeah, I mean, sort of mainstream clubbing, right? Yeah, not underground, I suppose, is yeah. probably not techno or not, you know what I mean? Yeah, the kind of the kind of clubs where, which are still sort of quite unquote proper dance music, but the big hits get played a lot, right? It's just a different kind of club, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, we still do, we still do a lot of cool underground labels, um, but that's where the artist runs it and doesn't really... Um, have the inclination to want to do it themselves. I think, you know, you've always done, you know, with Hot Flush, you've always done it yourself because you've had those relationships. You've had your frat drop. Do you know what I mean? It was, you, you had a label manager. And I think, yeah. you know, we've always done Andy C, but we've never done club for Ram. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's just, that's kind of the space. And I think it, it, to break out as a new artist, you, you kind of need those things, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean that's a fascinating question in itself, right? Because it's it's all very well talking about you know, you know our label which has been going for twenty years and, and Ram which has been going for longer. When you've got kind of an established name, it makes everything a lot easier. But when you're someone completely new, yeah, then that's I mean this is where the kind of the critical mass, the kind of volume, really becomes difficult to break through, right? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, absolutely. And like, look, we we have our our, 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 our sort of oh God. I, I don't want this to be like a club a club sort of rambling conversation because we keep spiraling. But like our club promo, we take a lot of pride in that. Like, mm. we don't send records to DJs that we don't think they all play. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're very specific about what we send out because mm. people don't listen to records if they you send them two records they don't like 
I think that's basically the easy way to sort of describe club promotion. So we're really anal about what we send and who we send it to mm. uh, and what we take on to work. So we kind of, I think with new artists, you kind of rely on the fact that what you've sent to that DJ previously, they're going to like this regardless, regardless if it's a new artist or not. Do you know what I mean? So that's what we kind of pride ourselves in what we do. I don't think many people do do that or they have, or, or, or labels that do their own promo. Realistically, it's their own label and they might have a so- totally diverse sound. You know, there's no point in me sending a house record to Andy City or, or sure. you know what I mean? It's, it's that sort of mentality. And I think that's the way that we break through artists. But I think radio comes alongside that as well. Yeah. But it's, it's what we do is a lot of work in the club, the club promotions lane because we're so anal with it. Yeah. Okay. Back to radio. Um, you mentioned working with Doja Cat and obviously she's one of the highest profile acts in the world, really. Yeah. What, what's my question? Is it significantly different? Um, I mean, obviously, obviously it is, um, out of the gate when you're working with an act with just an enormous global profile, but is it significantly different in how they view someone, someone of that, that size or these enormous acts? Like, do they view radio in a significantly different way? to you know an act which is hoping to get more you know, hoping to like significantly raise profile through radio for example uh it's, it's it's still as much of a priority i think when we started doja cat was her second album and at that point she was just starting to bubble where she wasn't nowhere near the level that she is now mm. at that point obviously that was when I think she did the deal with Sony and Ministry got her for the UK. So at that point, she was still a relatively sort of new act. It wasn't like she was like she needed we needed to we needed to promote it. You know, it wasn't just like a, a guarantee. We weren't walking onto playlists. And I think as an independent plugger, they're the sort of artists that we want to work with in that lane musically. Mm. I would put probably Doja Cat in the same space as, I don't know if you know Ants Live, okay. but Ants Live is kind of in a space now, which is bubbling in a specialist world that is starting to really sort of, you know, create a swell musically, socially, um, and at radio. And I think, it's it, yeah, it's very important for them. Now it's a very different proposition. Now it's very much like, okay, when are we going on playlist? Not how do we get to playlist? Yeah, I mean that was going to be my question, really. With the you know, the Paint the Town Red single, for example, I think that's the most recent one. What is the you know what's the conversation? Is it literally as you just said? Is it literally just like right? Where are we on this playlist? Yeah, I mean, like that from the label perspective, definitely, it's like okay, what's the plan? What, what's the rollout plan? I think with Doja, you know, because of COVID as well, like there was never she's never really been in the UK market to be able to do any sort of promo or anything, right? And I think with her, it's just there's so much online heat with her. And, and the last album was massive. With this project, it was it was very much like that. Look, what's the what? When are we going on, and what are we going on? Yeah. There was promo that we went. We did the live lounge, uh, the uh, live lounge month with her. Closed that out. You know, Radio One, Vicky from My Team's a boss. Like, um, has sort of led the charge on Doja. And I think the whole point of that was like, okay, we need to get you know, Paint Town Red on, and there's going to be other records that we, we'd had on pre that. 
uh, pre the launch, like like instant grats and what have you. And then when the album launched, it was very much like okay, it was like album tracks on playlist. That's the level that she's at. Right, right, yeah, okay. And, and, as, and as an independent, that's actually quite rare to have an artist like that. I think that shows the sort of change in the, the landscape over the last few years because previously if you get a record an artist to that point and they sign a deal with a major label that artist is going in-house at the major and we won't work it again got it it's it, it's it's kind of like we did becky hill for eight years and i think on her second brit like after her second brit the new album that was it's either st- yeah started this year that's gone in-house now but I think, you know, labels rely on like sort of independents like us to sort of get in the trenches and, and, and grind out. Mm. Once they get to a level where they are a playlist act, they essentially walk on, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Can you just actually, uh, for the uninitiated, could you just describe the radio playlist system in the UK? Um, essentially, there's three main national stations, KISS, Capital and Radio 1. They all have different structures, really. KISS uh, have quite a sort of middle ground uh, of, of freedom to be able to add records to F, to playlists based on their gut instincts and what and then the record itself to, to sort of give the record a very sharp, strong start. Uh, Capital is essentially top 40 radio. And even then, top doesn't guarantee, top 40 doesn't guarantee ads there. It's a very sort of, you know, commercial station. It's pop. Mm. Um, Radio One's very different. Radio One's very open, and because of they're not a commercial station, they can be a bit more free with their decisions of how they support artists and specific records. So you can have like a a very sort of cool near archives record on Radio One playlist, but you know Kiss and Capital probably won't add, and that means that the, and that's why Radio One's specialist shows are so important because you build records through that and move them towards that sort of daytime space. Uh, that's the sort of basis of it. I think with, with Radio 1, you build campaigns to a point of where they have a music team, which five people in their music team are like sort of, I suppose, the strong decision makers at Radio 1. Beyond that, you have a playlist team of 12 people that they're on as well. Um, and if you can get a record to a position that it feels hot enough and relevant enough for Radio 1, you'll go in for a discussion, uh, for our playlist discussion. And it's quite hard. Mm. It's quite hard to get to that point. You know, you need sort of good amount of plays. You need a track of the week, for example. Um, that's kind of the basics of it. I could go into real depth with it. Those, um, just taking that Radio 1 example or instance, I mean, you, you mentioned that it's, it's getting on those playlists is contingent on the existing performance on on the station. Like, how much of it is like lobbyable by by you, by someone like you, going in as a plugger and hoping to sort of sway their decisions? Like, how how much of um how much influence are you able to wield in there realistically? Um, you're talking about conversations that happen over maybe like two or three months in some cases, maybe longer in some cases. Yep. So it's not us going, you need to add this, because you need to demonstrate, first of all, there has to be passion for the record. And if there isn't passion for the record, that you need stats to be able to prove that that record needs to be heard by their audience on a broader scale. My missus takes the piss out of me all the time, because during lockdown, it was like, well, passion over stats 
all the time. <laughs> um, and that's that's kind of it, really. It's either passion or you've got the stats. Um, and I, and that's why it's very hard. I, uh, I'm trying to think of it. Because obviously we work a lot of cool stuff as well, so we should probably talk about that. But I'm talking a lot more about sort of the commercial stuff we do. Yeah, no, sure. I'm fascinated by this. So yeah, please well, continue. I think, like, there was a, there was a really good example of Lude. I don't know if you ever heard the Lude record, Man Down Under. And, like, I loved it when I heard it on his SoundCloud and I hit up his manager and was like, look, you should do this. And they were like, do you think? And I was like, I think it's fucking amazing. They managed to clear it. <laughs> and in, like, the first two weeks before Christmas, it was, like, late in December, it was like no one wanted to touch it with a barge bowl. Like, everyone was like, I want I like it. I can't play it. It was kind of the stance on it from everybody. It was really tough. And I was gutted because I thought, yes, it was really cheesy in in a sense that it's a well-known sample, but it was done so well. Anyway, we went away on Christmas, came back in January. And I I remember going into the office on the first day back and being like, what the fuck? It was like 23 in Shazam. And then we looked at the the midweek chart for the UK chart. And I think it was something like 50 in the chart. And I was like, what the fuck? has happened here and largely what happened during Christmas, him and his like manager and all his mates got COVID and they were locked down in this like flat in Australia and they were just fucking about on social media and essentially it went viral. (laughs) And essentially that, and that gave the impetus for me to be able to go back to radio and go, there you go, mate. Like, like there's the stats there to back it up. Mm. And I think I remember talking to Danny Howard about it and he was like, yeah, look, I, I, I like it, but I can't play it. And then back in January, he was like, yeah, yeah, I, I can give this a spin now. It makes more sense to me. And, that, and that's like public demand, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of an example of where it kind of works. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's almost a novelty record though, right? I guess. Yeah, it is. But like, I, you know, there was labels hitting me up going, why didn't you send me this? Like, <laughs> Because if I'd sent it to you, you'd have told me to piss off. <laughs> <laughs> now that there's the stats there to back it up, it kind of, you know... It, it right, everyone's, everyone's swayed by stats, right? <laughs> yeah, and look, unfortunately now, I think, particularly in, like, sort of commercial music, they are swayed by stats. Not just commercial music. No, I, I suppose it, it works for, you know, club bookings and, you know, like, you know, it's... I remember when it Beatport number 1 was, like, meant... Like, it was like you were, you were a hot act. I don't know hmm. how it... Ref- like reflects now but i think yeah people look at monthly listeners now or you know mm. uh, it's, it's it's a very difficult space because there are so many stuff yeah i think i think the big problem is that there isn't there isn't one metric that really tells you the whole picture no no exactly that so give me an example of a well what's what's the most quote-unquote underground records that you've got on a playlist or you've seen go on the, one of those big playlists I mean, we watched, we worked this really shit record by a guy called Scuba. I think it was Hard Body. <laughs> I mean, we had to polish, you know, polish a turd. We had to roll it in glitter, mate. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't that underground. I, I would, I would. No, I would, it wasn't. That was probably the most overground record you've ever done. Yeah. But I think that was a really good example of that. Like, it wasn't. It was very not underground for you, but at the time... I mean, yeah, I didn't have a vocal on. That's, I guess, like a big... Yeah. And we managed to sneak that onto Playlist in a quiet period, like over Christmas. I think it was January we managed to get it away. Mm. That's a really good example. Yeah. Like, there was passion for the record. Yeah. You know, like, I think... 
I've worked for Prids for years. Like he, 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 years ago, he was just like it was the hardest act because he was always seen in like the sort of that space at the time as probably quite underground. It wasn't by your standards, I suppose. But radio just didn't want to know. Mm. But now it's like they would snap your arm off for a, for a big Prids record, and I think times change a lot. Um, I suppose someone like Frankie Wah was is is probably the most recent in terms of. Uh, and he's again not fully underground, but there's definitely records we've got on playlist that were down to passion. All right. I think someone like Baklava is, you know, female act, you know, in a more sort of, I suppose, garage space. We worked really hard as to build her as an artist proposition. We're getting records away that aren't aren't doing numbers at all, but she has a proposition to her. You know, she's you know she's a brilliant artist and a brilliant vocalist and. I think those records where they're not doing any stats are the, the bigger wins for us, really, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, because you're getting it away based on passion. And look, to answer your question in a long-winded, rambly way, I suppose, yeah, we do have impact at radio. And we do because we're, I suppose, a trusted source of information and a trusted source of uh, relationships. We're not aggressive. I think major labels probably have to be aggressive major label internal pluggers have to be aggressive because that's their job internally mm. ours is to maintain relationships between the artist the manager the label uh, and the and radio but we chip away yeah um, and i think radio respect that you know it's not that we take no for an answer it's just we know we we what do you want from this what do you want from us we'll go and make it happen yeah type of vibe i suppose sure and yes, yeah, so look, and as I suppose, you know, we're a trusted source of, you know, music in whatever lane it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I guess a, a proof question to that I had was, um, is it possible to deliver a successful radio campaign without using a specialist group like like you guys? Obviously, it's different from the majors, but like, you know, as a, you know, as a small independent label, is it absolutely necessary to hire a specialist radio plugger to have success at radio? Depends what you define as success, I suppose. Like if you if you if you've got uh, you know you're a small independent label and you're you know you're getting a play on Radio One, a play on Radio One yep. is success for your first release on your new label, and you're an unknown artist. That that's amazing, and if you can do that, that's great because you you know you might know a producer or a presenter. I think there's there's <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that. Like, sure. Um, and I think it, we have we do campaigns where you know it's rare that we'll do campaigns where it, it goes badly. It doesn't. It might not go well or as well as we would like it to. But I think I don't really think every campaign ever sort of goes as well as you'd like it to until it's a number one record. I suppose. Right. Case in point, that Casso record with Do Ray and uh, D Block on it I mentioned earlier. You know, we worked that for months. It was number two for six weeks. We couldn't get it to number one. It got trumped twice by two different records. We couldn't get it to number one. And actually coming out of the campaign, it's a bit of a fail. But the record's platinum and it's been number two in the chart and every A-list on every radio station. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. It felt like a, a bit of a fail because of that. I think for an independent, again, it's, it's, it's what you want out of it. I think I'm working a lot more with artists, I suppose, now more so even in in a very much more underground space. Mm. I say I, we as a team, yep. uh, and my team are the nuts. Like, well, I can do what I do without them. I think we, we want to build artists 
not necessarily just records. Obviously, the one-off records have their place, but I think building artists is something we've really worked hard on over the last few years, and, and that's in whatever lane it is. Yeah. You know, trying to get them to, I suppose, Sammy Vergie's a good example because he's sort of come from this sort of garagey underground space and gone on to do a major label deal, but still is only really just getting started. And he's like a really, like he's an act that I feel like has a long-term future because he's, you know, he's both credible and commercial. And I, I suppose underground and commercial rather than credible and commercial. But, you know, Frankie Wire is someone that I've worked with for years and like I would call him a mate, like that was in a major label space, was really sort of comfortable there, wanted to do his own thing and has gone off and done that in the last two years and, and, and just building on, building on, building on his profile over that time, you know. That's that's interesting and that's that's what I feel like has become more important than just working with a label as such. Yeah, I mean, that project's really, really successful, isn't it? It's really flown. Mm. I think, like, you know... You've been in the, your game doing what you do for a lot longer, I suppose. You know, when we were doing that album, what was the album? Personality, the one that yes. uh, the one we got placed the playlist on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, no, it wasn't, was it? It was Hard Body, which was the single that came after Personality, but wasn't on the album. Well, Hard Body was the single. What was the album? Personality was the album, but but Hard Body yeah, wasn't yeah. actually on the album. It was a single that came out later. Oh right, okay. But yes, but it was that era anyway. But yeah, it was definitely that kind of period of time for sure but that again that was and that, i think it's that was a that i would say it's uh, a similar sort of trajectory as as where mm. frankie was come from i suppose obviously in a different lane musically but yeah still just sort of made it his own and i think that's what you had at that you know that point you everything you've done has very much been your own yeah do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. At that yeah. point, like an independent label that nobody else was doing or was having as much success with as as kind of you were, I suppose. The label stood out. Yeah. It was the whole package. Do you know what I mean? For sure. That was a good moment. Absolutely. So um, we, we mentioned streaming before and I had that as a topic of discussion. So I have reflected on the show in the past that streaming is basically just radio. Do you agree with that? To any extent, no. Okay, no. <laughs> okay. Give me that. Give me that argument against. <laughs> um, to digest it, yeah, but to discover it, no. Okay. Um, I think. I think. Look, spot. Uh, you know, everything has its place, and I think you know, Spotify is in the streaming space is very different to Apple Music and very different to probably Amazon now, which are are sort of starting to really sort of do good things. Mm. I don't think it can be classed as the same. I think the, the best comparison I can give it to you is in lockdown, I think when it first happened, no one really knew what was going on. It wasn't, uh, I, don't, I think everyone thought it was two weeks long. Sure. I think it was going to be two weeks and we were back to work, right? And then, and for me at that point was like, as a, like sort of running our own business, it was like, fuck, what does this mean for us? And I think at that point it was like, you know, Everyone needed radio because it gave personality and it gave someone in the room with you. And it was, it wasn't just music. It was like comms with the outside world, I suppose. Mm. That was in COVID. But I think what that actually meant was that as well, is that radio presenters are supposed to be educators. And look, some aren't and some are. I still religiously listen to Pete Tong every week. I just have done since God knows how long. 
way before I was working in music. I was DJing then, but like way before I was working in music. And I think that's because it's always, with him, it's always felt like a bit of an education or regardless of the, the changes in sound and what have you, it feels like there's, you, you, he's someone that's going to influence my taste in music because he has an opinion on it. I think with streaming, if it's algorithmically, playlists are algorithmically created, mm. which takes out that total, which takes out ears and, you know, making a decision on a record that you feel should be heard. And I don't think there's any amount of AI or, or algorithm that really I feel I need to be educated by, I suppose. Um, and that's not just because I'm a plugger. <laughs> I think that's I, streaming is it, it absolutely has its place, but I still find it quite a minefield. I still buy a shitload of vinyl because someone will post about a record or it's a record that I missed when I was buying records back in the day and there was no discogs. Do you know what I mean? Um, or, I'll hear a record in a club and I can Shazam it <laughs> as sad as that sounds because I want to own it. But I think radio still has that sort of education to it, educating part to it yeah. that I don't really feel streaming does have. Yeah. Okay. I, I can accept those, <laughs> those points. Do you those terms? Yeah. 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 What do you think? I mean, I mean, I, I agree with you on all those points. I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not sure how much of radio listening is of that sort, I guess, would be my kind of like pushback to that. Like, so yeah, there are, yeah. there are absolutely great radio DJs who add a huge amount of value to listening to something, which is, you know, which you, you're absolutely right. You don't get that from listening to a, to a, to a Spotify playlist or whatever, even if that Spotify playlist has been curated by an editor and that editor is really good. It's just not quite the same. I think probably that's probably fair, Yeah, but I don't know how much of the average, you know, <laughs> the average minute that is listened to of radio, you know, I don't know how much of that is of that sort of listening. And, the same for for streaming like so much of streaming listenership is is passive right it's not someone who kind of um yeah. you know goes out and listens to something uh explicitly or intentionally and i think that i think if there was an overlap and i do think there's an overlap it's that right it's the kind of person who just sticks on sticks on the radio in the car right and that might as well just be a spotify playlist i guess that's where i'm coming from with that yeah i suppose i get that but i think one drives the other, mm -hmm. not the other way around. So, you know, radio does drive streaming, right? Where, which is arguably the business that we're in, which is, you know, records, you know. So from your side, you listen to a record on radio, you can Shazam it, or you, the presenters told you about it so you can hear what the name is and you may then go to your playlist, go to, your, go to Spotify or whatever platform you use and search for that record and add it to your own playlist. I don't think it works the other way. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't work the other way. Yeah. Okay. And as much as... So hang on a second. Let me, sorry, let, let, me, let me ask you something about that. Do you never have a, a track which has for some reason gone viral on, on streaming, which does happen occasionally, which then translates into a big radio record rather than the other way around? Not on... Yes, but that's come from a social media... Right viral moment okay. not from a streaming viral moment okay so there's yeah, the, 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 the origin media, social media streaming but it's not necessarily there's definitely there's thousands of records like that yeah um we've got one on the go at the moment but like i think you mean originally it comes from tiktok not not from streaming and that's the kind of important bit right it's come from social media it hasn't come from yeah. streaming okay yeah that's fair the social media is drained like this swell of sort of activity and buzz 
which has then, you know, fed into the streaming of the record. But it's not, and that comes back with the social media to us and, 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 and that social media and streaming plot. But yeah, it's, I just feel like radio has, gives more. And I, I don't think, look, I, again, I listen to radio a lot because it's my job, I suppose. Radio is a bit more, it's easier to discover stuff because someone's going to put your face, but I'll listen to Benji or I'll listen to Giles or I'll listen to Pete or I'll listen, I, you know, I do listen to, you know, Danny's show and, and Sarah's show. That for me goes, that for me personally makes me discover music that I wouldn't have heard before. There's not loads that I'll go and buy a record off of, uh, of hearing it on the radio. There's not loads of times that will happen. And, you know, and bearing in mind, I still listen to, we still, we listen to NTS in the office. We listen to Rinse or we listen to, you know, those are the spaces as well. That, that's radio as well. And that does have impact because that's more specialist and more sort of headsy. I think the sort of Radio 1s and Kiss and Capitals of the world, they open up people to, uh, an, to, to music they probably wouldn't listen to before because they grew up listening to Capital FM because it's pop music. Sure. Okay, you mentioned social media, and I've got to ask because it's what everyone talks about. Like, what is the influence of TikTok and how have you seen it grow? Yeah, I mean, like, on anything specific or, or sort of just what I do? Well, I mean, just what we were talking about, I suppose. You you, you mentioned the the kind of um, the impact of records that really blow up on socials, and and I think TikTok's probably the most important one for that for that phenomenon. How how has this thing developed, and how significant is it? Yeah, it's very significant, but I think it's sort of significant to you know in a very sort of strange way, I suppose. Look, you, you upload a sound to TikTok, the content that's in front of it, if something connects, it gets it, it share, it's shared. Mm. And the sound, but the sound becomes the background to whatever is shared. So whether that's your own video or a video that someone else has made or something stupid or whatever, it becomes a, a sound that relates to that moment. Yep. That organically generates Shazam, um, which is really important on a radio's perspective because it's a general a general sort of way that you can see that's demonstrated, but that, that there's general interest in what that record is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether yeah. it's played on radio or whether it's heard on social media. So t- uh, Shazam, that, that triggers a lot of Shazam. There's records that are on TikTok that may have done a million video creations or whatever it is that don't stream. So you can have an isolated TikTok viral moment, but it doesn't really turn a record into a hit. Mm. Um, I think it's the ones that progress onto being sort of streaming hits that then progress on from there are the ones that that impact. That said, I don't think many people really care at radio uh, if it's had a million video creations or it's been tagged one billion times on TikTok. Because the reality is it's still got to cross into a sales space for them to sort of buy in. Okay. And presumably if it has translated to significant Shazams, then that would be a big deal. Yeah, because that's a good start point for us at radio. You know, um, like I mentioned on the Lude record before, like... Yeah, that's a real indication that the, the record is like catching people's attention, right? I mean, that's a, it doesn't get any more tactile than that, right? It's made someone pick up their phone and yeah. hit the Shazam button, right? Absolutely. And like pre-Shazam, it was a very different world, but Shazam, it gives you, yeah, as I say, it's a bona fide reaction to a record being played wherever it is. 
there was moments where like a Love Island record would get like it would just fly up a Shazam chart. You know, it's played for 30 seconds. So if someone's managed to tag it in that time, you know, impressive, but that's a desire to to tag what and find out what that record is. Yeah. And different things impact different spaces. I think like there was a point where they were doing, you know, we, we would look through sort of from July to sort of September, we we look at Ibiza Shazam mm. to see what the trends are there. If there's a particular record that stands out in Ibiza, labels do that. I do it because if a label's going to sign a record, I want to work it. So I'm, I'm on that sort of, I'm looking for those sorts of things. Um, but the, the Shazam is a good, is, is a good uh, gauge for a, a good tool for me to be able to go to radio and say, look, this is reactive. There's a record by an act called Zerb that just, um, just his album drops, like not long ago, largely unheard of act, very, very new, very fresh. One record socially popped off and it flew up Shazam, you know, and no one at radio had played it at that point. We took, you know, we were, we were talking to the label already. We took the record on. We've gone to radio and it's feeling really strong. And, you know, the way that it's moving now, that will probably go on after all the Christmas records drop out of the chart. We'll probably go on and into the chart in, the, in sort of January. But that was the start point. It was like, I'll go to Danny or I'll go to, you know, we go to radio shows and, and, and you know, it's 40 inches am like, you know, this is a, this is a heat record and there isn't any other record around that's doing that at the moment. Sure. Yeah. Let me just, um, I just want to go back to streaming for a moment. A question I had written down, which I would actually be really interested in was, as, did you prepare for this? Mate, I've got a massive <laughs> list of notes. I'm diligent in my preparation for these podcasts. Are your editing skills going to need to be really strong as well. Right? <laughs> now, I wanted to ask, like, as a as a company, was there ever a point where you really saw streaming as a as a threat to your kind of core business? I don't think so. No, it's obviously there, but I don't think. The like, did you always are, have the same the kind of opinion? Of, of ever changed. Like, radio just seems to keep growing. I, th- I suppose from the outside looking in, it, you, you would you would think that that might be a concern, but I actually don't see it that way at all. Like radio is sort of the numbers keep increasing constantly, right? Um, and whether that is like you know a white van man or a, um, people listening to it in a warehouse or listening to it in their office, I, I think radio is still. I, I still put the radio on, like, and I know that's me again, but I think the numbers in, on that side of things, on like radars and what have you. No, I think both have their place. It's kind of just, I've always seen it as, funny, because I've always seen it as two different formats, really. Sure, sure. Like, I always listen to radio, bore vinyl, but I still listen to radio. And look, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of crap radio. There's a lot of good radio. Um, And I think, actually, things like, you know, DAB and, and like, app-based radio or, or radio stations that have an app that you can go and listen to again to specific shows... Is actually um, is actually a really strong media, mm. and to be honest with you, if I was that concerned about it, I probably wouldn't be still a radio plugger. Sure, I mean, I guess my my question really was well, an element of my question was like, was there ever a point where you didn't have the view of streaming that you that you gave? But from what you're saying, that it's it's been pretty consistent. Yeah, I, do you know what streaming just came out of the blue, I suppose. And do you know what actually also. When I when I was defected, and I was there for a long time, so I weathered a lot of different spells, yeah. or we weathered a lot of different spells, and that like that that sort of transition from selling vinyl to selling CDs, 
from selling CDs to, you know, Beatport. And I think when streaming came in, it was just kind of like, oh, it's just another media platform that we're going to have to sort of figure out how to use. Um, you know, the digital, physical to digital transition was brutal yeah. uh, for, for, for labels back then. You know, vinyl was dead and no one was doing any sales, apparently. I, you know, we still did sales, but we weren't doing as much. But I think, And I think that's the same with streaming now, is I think it's just, for me, I just see it as a consumption platform rather than mm. anything more than that. I, 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 I use Spotify, but I don't sit and build playlists. But that's, I suppose that's just my personal opinion. You know, you know how hard it is with Spotify to, to get, sort of added to playlists and get sort of profile and, and build yeah, streams hard, yeah. on that platform, yeah. on any streaming platform. Radio's promotion is profile and it's it's a bit more to it than that, which is weird because, it, you know, as much as it is di- mostly digital now, it's still an analog, analog media form, do you know what I mean? But no, in the short answer, which you can just <laughs> cut all of that out and just say, um, I don't think I've really ever massively been concerned about streaming taking over. Because I suppose 90% of the, 99% of the time I'm listening to labels, you know, moaning about the fact that they haven't got a profile <laughs> on streaming and they need radio to the record, I suppose. I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I had a question about demographics, actually. You mentioned that so radio numbers have really held up. What's the demographic picture there? Yeah. Is, it, is it healthy with regards to young people? coming in and supporting and kind of like getting involved in the medium? What, what does it look like from that perspective? Yeah, I, it definitely, definitely, like it's definitely young. I mean, I think Radio 1's demographic 16 to 25 yeah. is their target demographic. But what do you know what that kind of works out as in terms of what, what it actually is? What, the, the splits off the top of my head? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely not. Um, because, though, you know, I could find it. Rajar, you could definitely dig it. I could definitely dig it out. I don't think that for me, for me doing what I do is is that relevant. Other than the fact that I suppose the only thing that I could would say have things have changed is that the presenting styles have changed or the presenting sort of okay. In what way? Uh, I think delivering. I mean, look, you you could listen to Radio One, Radio Two, Six Music, and Radio Four if you want. You can tell the differences in the way that the, the, those those shows are presented and the types of characters. Yeah, there's a kind of house style for each one, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, Radio 1 is definitely geared towards a younger audience and a bit more bantery and a bit more sort of mm. young banter in that sense. You know, Radio 2 is is a bit more older and, you know, looking at, you know, that 30, I suppose, 30 plus demographic that plays records from when you were mm. 16, 17, 18 or whatever. And I suppose the presenting the presenters that are used in that, and I'm talking on a commercial daytime level here, you can tell it's a bit more mature. You know, you listen to Radio 4, my missus insists on listening to it in the morning. It's probably a, a, a sort of more informed, older demographic target. Six Music is that sort of cooler left vibe, you know, look Giles and Benji's presenting styles, you know, or whatever, Benji, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You know, Specialist is... Specialist is quite like is is you know still sort of it's cooler on Radio One and on Friday night you know it, it, you know Danny has his presenting style Sarah has hers Pete has his you know I think in a specialist world they have their sort of voice of authority in the lane that they present and sh- and that yeah. show that they do do you know what I mean Yeah, no, absolutely. I always thought that Pete was much cooler than Jules. <laughs> Sorry, Jules. This is the way that he presented 
and the sound that he played. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. It was funny that, um, I don't know if you listened to the Trevor Jackson episode a couple of weeks ago, but he was um, extolling the virtues of Judge Jules as a DJ in his in his early days. I didn't I didn't realize that Judge Jules was such a credible DJ before he joined Radio 1 and started playing trance, but I mean, that's another story. Yeah, but the thing is, do you know what? Because it, it went, I think it was Pete Jules, well, was Seb was there obviously for a bit, but I, um, Dave... Pierce. Pierce. I was going to say Clark, but that's definitely not the same. Uh, and then Dave Pierce. So it was kind of like, it kind of went through the cool stages, if you know what I mean. I was never a trance head. I was certainly never a Dave Pierce sort of commercial sort of space dance head at that point. But Pete was always like the start point of the evening. Right. So I think on that sort of level, it was the same then, really. It was kind of credible. I don't know. And I think radio's changed, and I'm not saying that it's the same as it is now, but it's changed. Each show has its own place, and it's it's on at that time presenting music for that time. I think when Annie left, Radio 1 wanted that 6 o'clock show to be more commercial. So, you know, and I think Danny Danny went straight into that, knowing full well what that was about. And he's a brilliant presenter. Mm. But it's a different sound to what Sarah plays. It's a different sound to what Pete plays, but it's presented in a different way as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, listen, I wanted to finish up by talking about your time at Defected, which we have touched upon. <laughs> but as you mentioned, it was in a very tumultuous period mm. in the dance scene, particularly in the music industry generally, but I think particularly in the dance scene. Like, like you said, the, uh, the kind of the, the switch between switch from vinyl, kind of vinyl associated business model to downloads before prior to streaming. And obviously all the the file sharing stuff. But how did you how did you get the job at Defected? What was that your first job in music? Uh, it was my first like. Where was I? I suppose it wasn't my first job. Uh, do you remember Paul Jackson? You probably remember him. Remember Ministry him. resident. He was signed to Underwater, and he was yeah okay yeah kids stuff with Influential, uh, which was Defected's sister label. Uh, he was a DJ full time. I followed him around for a long time. Uh, drove him up and down. The M1. Oh, right, okay. Um, and I was, you know, obviously was DJing off the back of that and, and not off the back of him, but, like, I, I got into DJing because of that. And I lived with a guy called Tony Tambourine who was, at the time, the press guy at Turnmills. Yep. And I used to DJ there a lot. I was at the Cross a lot and Pasha and Ministry and what have you. And then I kind of was, like, I didn't work. You know, I was just DJing, like, three, four nights a week. And... We we moved we had a flat together and he was he became the defected press guy and he was like mate I just basically sat listening to records Monday to Wednesday and DJ rest of the week did, did fuck all thought I was going to do it forever um, and he was just like mate you got to get a job I was like I don't want a job he was like why don't you come and intern at defected and I was like all right I'll give it a shot and um, I worked because I ran my own party called Soda. Um, at Madame Jojo's on a Sunday morning and I worked in the events team for a bit and then I started working as Dunmore's A&R assist, intern or assistant. I suppose he didn't have an assistant, so I was, I suppose, his assistant. And did that for a couple of years and then I worked with a guy called Tony Garvey who's, you know, uh, was the promotions guy. He was the promotions manager, head of promotions, actually, for a couple more years and then he left to go into management and I took over as promotions manager. 
What did that actually entail? What what did what was the work of a promotions manager in those days? Pretty much what I do now, really. Um, maybe a bit more um, frontline um, and a bit more sort of creative in terms of because you weren't just radio plugging or doing club promotion. You were, you know, doing everything mm. to do with the brand label. Um, I think at that time, Defected basically had this label services sort of uh, structure because everything had gone to digital and they weren't making anywhere near the money they were before. They went to this sort of label services structure because we had the infrastructure. Um, and so we took on like Axe Tone, Subliminal, Strictly Rhythm, Junior Boy Zone, Size, loads. Loads of really cool labels mm. as well, like old labels, uh, Fourth Floor, Suburban uh, from the States. And, and as much as I loved it, and the vast majority of the music, not all of it, I think I just felt like it was a bit of a conveyor belt of putting records out because digital, you needed to sort of work so much harder and do so much more to make money, Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And I think, look, ultimately that was the reason I left, but I think like I, I, learned, I learned everything there. I hadn't used a PC since I was at like, school. I had a Mac. I mean, MySpace was probably the most complicated thing that I ever did before that. Um, so sorry, how how long were you at Defective for in total? Eight years. Yeah, it's a long time. And yeah, I learned, yeah, man. I mean, like Sandy Rivera, was, we were opposite Black Market Records, so like I learned, I met everyone that I, I'm still friends with. You know, Sandy Rivera had his studio in the basement, wrote his, you know, all the Black Wiz releases and his out, first album on Defected uh, as Kings of Tomorrow. Like I sat in a studio packing records while he was writing his album. Hmm. Um, it was that sort of level of madness. So it was really cool. Got a lot of promos. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go in the black market with like a box of tests and just trade up with Goldie and just get a load of records for <laughs> just and then go and see Ewan from like Ewan and Spencer uh, Spencer Parker in Uptown and yeah, it was just like a little. It was a, it was culturally it was mental. It was so good, but things changed when it all went digital. Right. I remember when we we did like Dimitri from Paris in the house compilation, and Amato, who's a distributor, their 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 warehouse burned down, and all the stock went, and Defected nearly went under because of that. I don't think people really sort of see that side of it. Defected nearly went under. I mean, like there was you know some hairy moments, but I like, learned everything. I I probably I learned a lot. I, I've learned a lot more since leaving there. But every day's a school day, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so last question. Go on. Was that a good answer? I don't even know if that was a good answer to the book. To the yeah, question. I mean, it wasn't really much of a question. I was just asking you to talk about it and you talked about it. So yeah. yeah, it was good. Um, I mean, we have talked about it in the course of the conversation too. But yeah, the last question I had was, and this is relevant to what you just said, actually, like what, what advice would you give to a kid wanting to get into the music industry today? What would you tell them to do? As an artist or as a, to work in music, to work in the industry? I think to work in music, yeah. Because it's one thing, yeah, it's one thing just wanting to make tunes. I mean, fine. But like, yeah, if someone who wants to, just wants to, you know, someone who loves going out, loves the whole thing, just wants to be involved. Yeah. Um, work hard, graft. I think that's that's largely all I ever did. Just work hard. Right. It almost doesn't matter what what you're, what, what area you're in. Yeah, just just work just hard and learn what you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, do anything you can to learn. Like, I, I, I don't have a degree. I dropped out of college. Like, I mean, I, I, 
you know, I thought I was going to be a DJ and I was for a long period of time until I realized that unless I made records and spent a lot of time learning that I wasn't going to be, which I've, you know, done as well. But I think, yeah, I think it's just work hard, man, and be passionate. And, you know, I've got an amazing team. Like we built a company, like my the radio team and my streaming team are like, I suppose, 14 people now. And every single one of those, bar me and Luke, have been interns or assistants at some point. And that in itself is sort of testament to the fact that all my heads, all three of my heads of department were in my interns and are amazing at what they do. And everyone in the team has come through that process. And I think it's, everyone thinks the music industry is all bants and like party, party, party. Um, it's hard work. And I think, you know, the young team kids that come through, like we, we look after them because they work hard. Mm. And I think be passionate like have your heart side hustles you know i think everyone everyone's got their side hustles like my vicky's my department she's you know uh she's got her own podcast esky he's just he's just stopped working with us now to go into uh management you know he's got sean roots of m tia was on i think nts tia's like you know screams girl like she's she plays you know she plays all over the country all over the world at the moment she's djing a lot ned's a producer you know what i mean it's like everyone's got their passions but i think like you know, having a job is kind of structure and just work hard. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Anyway, this has been awesome. Thanks for your time, Jack. It's been great. Yeah, I hope it was helpful, mate. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, that was James Jackson, Managing Director of Press, Radio and Club, and I think streaming as well. I mean, he's just kind of like running the show, I think, at this point at Listen Up. Luke Neville, I think, founded the agency. Yeah, he definitely founded it. And I remember meeting those guys back in, well, we, we mentioned the personality album campaign that I did back in 2012. And they were sort of, I guess, the first people that I met in this section of the industry. And they're just very nice people, generally speaking, and really know their stuff, as you would have gathered from that conversation with Jacko. So, yeah, we haven't talked about that stuff before on the show. It's really, really great to cover it. We did cover it in some detail. And from different areas too, it's great to hear about working with an act as big as Doja Cat. And yeah, just very, very interesting really on a number of levels. So yeah, really good episodes. That was episode 99. Hold tight for episode 100 or whatever happens next week. Have a great holiday. I'm not going to speak to you again before Christmas. So if you celebrate Christmas, have a good Christmas. If you don't, then have a good holiday. And yeah, remember you can support the show if you're enjoying it patreon.com slash scuba official for subscriptions and for one-off donations you know it's like a time of year scubaofficial.io slash support for paypal credit cards whatever i really do hate saying credit cards it sounds so much worse than paypal <laughs> it genuinely does but anyway yeah if you want to support us then those are the ways you can do it there's also a spotify playlist which you can follow via a link in the show notes and join us in the discord come and say happy holidays in the discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord gets you through to that discord server and um if you're a patreon member then there is some private areas that you can get to but anyone could just join the server so yeah do that and come and say hello come and say how you doing etc okay this has been a good episode two guest episodes for the first time i think for the first time yeah establishing new precedents 
I will be back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of a Not A Diamond podcast. Thanks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.